Good evening. You're listening to WNUR 89.3 FM, HD1, Evanston, Chicago. I'm Alex Huerta, and this is WNUR News at 6. Tonight, Northwestern and the AI generation, online dating, science and love, and the Fairweather Friends Report. Those stories and more coming up from Northwestern University. This is WNUR News at 6. Tonight, we delve into the evolving landscape of academic integrity and technological advancement at Northwestern University. Our WR News reporter, Edward Simon Cruz, investigates the university's strategy and responds to the burgeoning use of generative AI tools among students. Stay tuned as we uncover the measures being taken to maintain ethical boundaries in the digital age. That lead you just heard was written by ChatGPT, the chatbot that took the digital world by storm after it was released in November 2022. Here's ChatGPT describing what it does. Quote, ChatGPT is a generative AI model developed by OpenAI that generates human-like text based on the input it receives, capable of engaging in conversation, providing information, or generating creative content across various topics and contexts. I use ChatGPT to write parts of my introduction, but we can use ChatGPT for many other purposes. Here's what some Northwestern students have said about it. I use it for a lot of uh essay-based assignments. If I'm like having a hard time getting started on a homework, I could like put the code into ChatGPT and it'll explain it. Or if I get stuck, like an error that I can't find, I can put my code into ChatGPT and it'll find like where the error is and like recommend some things that could help fix it. I think ChatGPT is like a really useful tool when it comes to brainstorming and like creating concepts and ideas, especially for like essays, just having a basis, like an outline of what I want to write before. I think it's really helpful. I feel like I sort of value my own creativity when it comes to um, homeworks and writings and things that I feel like I should express my own thoughts. But I do use ChatGPT when I have to get a grasp of ideas, of concepts that was taught in class. I usually use it more for recreational purposes, for like recipes or traveling. According to separate fall 2023 surveys from both the Associated Student Government and Northwestern IT, the majority of students use AI at least occasionally or once a month. Some faculty members became concerned about the frequency with which students use generative AI. We saw a lot of worry on the part of faculty that new tools that were being introduced and sort of rolled out without a huge amount of discrimination as to how the tools should be used made faculty worry that students would use these tools to basically do their thinking for them. And then shortly after the tools were rolled out and the press got hold of them and we started seeing story after story about ChatGPT and OpenAI, the stories about how the large language models very often would hallucinate and create language predictions that didn't actually have any basis in reality made people worry even more. That's Victoria Geddes, Director of Teaching and Learning Technologies at Northwestern IT and Chair of the Provost's Generative AI Advisory Committee. Large language models, including ChatGPT, may generate content that is not only inaccurate, but also reflective of social biases. The tools are trained on the internet and all the data that are out there. And unfortunately, the internet has a lot of biases built into it. And so it's not too surprising that something trained on a biased corpus of material would also display bias. How did the committee respond to the emergence of ChatGPT? 
Here's another of its members, Elizabeth Lenahan, director of the Cook Family Writing Program and assistant director of The Writing Place. Writing is a means of thinking. It's a means of figuring out your thoughts on issues and figuring out what your identity is. All of those things are so integral to the writing process and have the potential to be stripped away if we're relying on generative AI too much. But according to both Geddes and Linehan, that doesn't mean faculty members should immediately condemn or ignore generative AI. I do feel that faculty who teach writing and who teach lots of different things have some sort of obligation to acknowledge the fact that AI is, you know, a part of the world now and that it is going to be a part of the workplaces and things that many of our students engage in beyond the classroom. Last August, the committee hosted a series of faculty workshops on generative AI tools and possible ways to incorporate them into classrooms. About half of the students surveyed through Canvas last fall said their professors allowed AI to be used within limits. Some professors created videos about assignments incorporating AI. These videos are available on the university's website. In one video, Ken Alder, a history professor, talked about an instance when students ran an assignment prompt through ChatGPT and marked up its response for errors. It basically was the most banal Wikipedia version of their project. And so in a weird way, it was a great lesson for them about what constituted research in depth. In another video, Ignacio Cruz, an assistant professor of communication, discussed using AI tools to evaluate students' resumes. We can unpack these systems to an extent to be able to show them the role that they play in their own experiences in the job market and beyond. And Chin Hong Chang, an associate professor of Chinese, shared her experiences about an essay writing assignment that incorporated ChatGPT throughout the process. They could learn the language structures from the writing. For example, you can say and, you can say in addition, you can say as well as. So it was a good tool for them to immerse or expose themselves to the language outside the classroom. What do the students themselves think of ChatGPT and other models built on generative AI? I think it's a useful tool, but oftentimes I think like the human brain can, can do better. I think it's helpful if you use it in the right way. It's a good tool to get feedback on essays and um, help edit, but it's not great at writing them like on its own. So it's really just like you get out what you put in. For WNUR News, I'm Edward Simon Cruz. Thanks, Edward. Looking for someone to spend Valentine's Day with? Don't want to put in the effort or face the embarrassment of asking them out in person? Izzy Pereja's advice from last year has also got you covered this year with a comprehensive guide to online dating at Northwestern. And looking for someone to spend Valentine's Day with? Scared to make things awkward by asking out someone in your class with three weeks still left in the quarter? Enter the exciting world of dating apps, where you can meet people looking for love or less from the comfort and safety of your own dorm room. Although it can all be very exciting, those who have used dating apps before likely know the feeling of being sucked into a swiping loop, where looking at just one more profile can lead to another hour of being glued to the screen. If you're expecting to have to be particularly productive during the next few weeks, it might be important to understand what exactly you're getting yourself into before you hit download. I sat down with sophomore computer science, RTVF, and art history triple major George Segris to get more insight on how exactly these apps function. I'm a CS major 
and really interested in like user design, especially in like relation to video games. But a lot of these apps work a lot like video games. So I've read articles that go into and say basically that Tinder behind the scenes, they basically rate your profile and will give you like a numerical rating. And then depending on what behavior they want from you, they will uh, give you different numbers for you to swipe on. So like when you first download the app, they show you high numbers to get you like interested in the app. Um, and then they gradually decrease it, um, which you think would like decrease the amount of time you spend on the app, but it actually increases it because then you're, you're seeking out intermittent reinforcement where you basically will only get a reward every once in a while and it's random. And so you start to seek it more. So it's like literally like a slot machine. When it finally starts to have the opposite effect and you start to spend less time on the app, then it will give you high numbers that have actually swiped on you. Then now you're matching with hot people. So then you want to stay more and then they can decrease it again because you've had, you've been intermittently reinforced. So it's a cycle. So if you think you have the time to develop one more social media addiction, dating apps can be fun and easy ways to connect with people you wouldn't normally come across every day. But that doesn't mean they don't offer their fair share of odd or unpleasant experiences. To help you avoid this, I interviewed students for their tips and tricks for online dating at Northwestern. Here are Segris and fellow Northwestern students Delilah Schmeck, Arrow Summers, and Elizabeth Egrisitz with their takes on the best dating apps and advice for surviving the online dating world. What's your favorite dating app to use and why? I don't like any of them. Um, Hinge seems to be the most, like, slowest pace. It doesn't use as much of, like, the yucky algorithm stuff, but it still does use it. Um, I would actually say this is gay male exclusive, but Grindr is the most transparent where it's, like, you're here for a hookup and there's no like complications. It's just like utilitarian almost. I only use Tinder. The other ones all seem a lot more work. And like you have to like think a lot more when you're making your profile and like put a lot more effort into it. And like people really like care about what you put and like use that to like make real judgments where Tinder it's just like a fun little swipey game with some pictures. I would say, in all honesty, I've only used Tinder, so probably that. But I've used other people's uh, Hinge accounts, if that counts. Hinge is my favorite because Bumble, women have to message first, which sometimes I'm lazy. Tinder is, like, really creepy. And Hinge is just, like, funny prompts. It's not like an immediate match with someone. I get to like look at their profile before I like decide. It's like a it's like a nice little surprise. Plus you can see who liked you. And like in Tinder, you're just like, well, like I hope. What are your best dating app strategies? I prefer to just like be funny, especially for like hinge prompts. Um, I feel like that's not the place for like a serious dissertation on your thoughts of two truths and a lie. If a guy's first picture either covers his face, like you can't see his face, is a group picture with no indication of which one he is, or if it's a shirtless picture right off the bat, it's an automatic no, because those are all just too much. I'm not like on there, like looking for like love or really anything. 
So uh, most of the time, it's whatever brings me and the people in my general vicinity the most joy to say. Me and my friends, which is kind of crazy, we'll like gather around as like as like 10 or 12 people and we'll all just look at the same person's Tinder and we'll we'll decide like as a unit, as like a democratic process. It's like a fun little game. I would say that I usually never message someone first unless I have something interesting to say. I need to be like, oh, like you like this, so do I. Or like some funny line that has to do with their profile. Like I'm never just going to say, hey, on the rare occasion that I do message someone first because again, I'm busy, I'm booked and busy, I'm lazy. Do you have any words of wisdom or warning to share with people who have never used dating apps before? It doesn't define you as a person, which I feel like is obvious, but like it doesn't feel like that sometimes. If you're really like looking for it, it will happen. And I feel like some of my better relationships have happened in person and not through dating apps. Sometimes it feels like it's just a fun little game where they're just showing you some fun little random things. And then sometimes those random little things you swiped right on um, turn into real people that are really trying really hard to make plans. And they are real, and you have to remember that because they are going to do unpredictable things, and that's frightening that they can actually request to see you be nice to people like even if even if it's like jokes and stuff it's nothing like absolutely horrendous um because like friends of mine that are women have like shown me screenshots of like the most atrocious stuff ever do not be precise about your location do not give too much information to people you do not know if a man who's over the age of 20 asks for your snapchat run because you're 20 years old Sometimes it's a game, like just have fun. It's not that serious. But at the end of the day, there is a real live person over there on the other side who could be dangerous, who could be emotional. Like F it, we ball, but like also like be responsible. Never talk to a you Chicago man. Never. Ever. They're the worst. They're also the enemy. There you have it a comprehensive guide for surviving Northwestern's online dating scene. Best of luck to all those looking for love or whatever else this Valentine's Day. And happy swiping. For WNUR News, this is Izzy Perea. Thanks, Izzy. Science and math are often considered objective disciplines, but what happens about when science and emotion intersect? Mika Ellison brings us stories of science, love, and a lonely whale. Most Valentine's Day. And one thing everyone loves to talk about is love. From literature to journalism to the gossip students engage in on a regular basis, we are surrounded by the rhetoric of romantic entanglements. It's easy to be a hopeless romantic. But what if love really is all around us? It's in the air we breathe, the genes that make up our personalities, and it's in the way we ask questions about the universe. Today, we're exploring the way love and emotions in general color the way we talk and think about science. In the vein of science communication greats like Carl Sagan, I'm bringing you just four of the ways science and math, the great objective disciplines, open doorways into some of our most strongest, awe-inspiring emotions. Peter Birch is the newspaper and microform specialist at University Library. When he was growing up, a present from his father unlocked a passion for the universe. So I guess I started sort of being obsessed with the heavens above me in Wisconsin when I grew up in Madison and 
I, my dad um, was nice enough to buy me a garage sale telescope. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it was like salmon color or orange. I felt like astronomy sort of like was definitely a happy place. Mm-hmm. Um, even going out in the driveway when it was 20 degrees in Wisconsin or 20 below effectively and throwing that telescope because sometimes this was really cold, clear nights. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see some things. I could see the four moons of Jupiter though. Wow. So I felt like I was unaware that those things, you know, with a simple um, device, you could see. During the pandemic, looking at stars was a way for him to get out of the house without actually leaving. With a decent pair of astronomy binoculars, the entire universe is your oyster. And I went in the middle of my yard last winter on a clear February night, and I could see the green fuzzy comet. Your green fuzzy oyster. Wait, okay, what is the green fuzzy comet? So the green fuzzy comet, so it looks like a green fuzzy ball. (laughs) It's a comet. But really, it doesn't look green and fuzzy when you look at it through your naked eye um, from the ground or from a, um, from a binoculars. Um, but you're looking at a green fuzzy comet that just looks like a really, looks like a faded cotton ball, a little bit bigger than a star and just a slightly misshapen object. Mm-hmm. So you know that's not a star. It's not twinkling. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the, the illustrious green fuzzy comet I saw. You know, I stayed up till 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I'm waiting for it just to show. They discovered it, and then they're not sure what the trajectory is for. They might not know what the orbit is. They might not ever make an appearance again. So love, in the case of astronomy, might be standing in your freezing cold backyard to see, for possibly maybe the only time, a star that is billions of light years away. Speaking of light, if you've ever turned on one in your apartment, you've tapped into the United States electricity grid, which is synchronized to an average of 60 hertz. As it turns out, humans aren't the only ones who rely on a system like that. Most blue whales communicate on a frequency between 10 and 49 hertz. Most blue whales. Whales communicate, like, they have, like, a set, like, frequency for, for communication, and apparently they can't hear outside of that frequency. So apparently the 52 hertz whale is this whale that, um, for some reason, it's not making sound at the correct frequency, so nobody else can hear it. And so it's just, like, wandering. Scientists have, like, heard its whale calls, but no other whales can hear its whale calls. That was Weinberg sophomore young Yu Huang, who introduced me to 52 Blue, also known as the 52 hertz whale, or the loneliest whale in the world. Scientists have been hearing the 52 hertz whale call since 1989, and the calls have been heard regularly every year since 2014. Science also has the potential to actually change the way we live our lives, sometimes within our lifetime. Weinberg Jr. Catherine Carver has watched in real time as genome sequencing went from a dream to a reality. There's been a huge rise in how we've been able to basically look at patient data and basically tailor care to patients based off of their data. So for instance, the best example I can think of is my youngest sister has a genetic disorder and for years we didn't know what was causing it and then genome sequencing became a thing and implementing these screens in the clinic became a thing and they started researching um, how you could use this data to then identify certain dependencies in the genome that could make you have these disorders. And so I think thinking about how those sorts of um, technologies can go from being just an idea in somebody's brain that can actually literally change the trajectory of a patient's life. Like I saw that for my sister and for my family. So I think for me, it's when science intersects with humanity and seeing that impact, what makes me emotional about science.
One of the greatest myths about love is that it is easy, because everyone does it. One of the greatest myths about math is that it's difficult, possibly also because everyone has to do it. It turns out the two subjects are more closely connected than you might think, at least for some. There's a saying I've seen somewhere, and I could not tell you where, that you need to be creative to be a mathematician and precise to be a poet, which is sort of the opposite of what you might think, and I think that's right. I think you need a little bit of both for both. That's Weinberg sophomore Scott Wong. So I am a math major. I'm also a stats major, but I'm a math major in my heart. That's uh-huh. what I'll say. And the reason is, is the same reason that I also like writing and I also like art is, and, and music is that I think that there's parts of math that if you, you know, understand it enough and then you really get into it, it, it just feels really beautiful, at least to me. When I asked him about love and math, the first story he told me was actually a proof. It starts with a sphere. So you have any sphere. Um, so we're talking the surface of a ball. And you have any five points on the sphere. And I claim that you will always be able to find a hemisphere that has four of those points, which seems I think, if you were to just guess, improbable, that that should always exist. Um, And the kicker is we have to define hemisphere a little bit. A hemisphere, if you, is half a sphere, essentially if you you were to cut the sphere in half through the center, you would get a hemisphere, but but that line on which you cut it is going to count for both. That's, That's important to the proof. And so here's how it works you will always be able to draw a plane, basically draw a cut through two of the points because you have two of the points in the the center and that that way you can cut it through there. And so those two points are gonna count for both hemispheres. And then you have three points left over and two sides. So at least one of the sides has to have two points and then you have your four pointed side. And I just think that's so elegant and, and part of the beauty, too, is when you're really digging into the proof without having heard it, you're just trying to figure it out for yourself. And then you finally hit that moment where it all clicks and you're like, oh my gosh, isn't that wonderful? Wong's favorite book is called Letter to a Young Scientist. It's by E.O. Wilson. And it encapsulates how he feels about science. And then he talks about how creativity and curiosity and all these sort of Like, he's talking about the soft skills of being a scientist and just really wanting to learn. And it's just so inspiring the way that he he looks at the world and says, okay, it's not about your math ability or it's not about, you know, your ability to necessarily learn how to, I don't know, use a PCR machine. Those things will come after your sort of ability to just ask questions, pursue questions, and spend a lot of time, spend a lot of time just trying things. For people who love math and science, love is about wanting to know more. It's about dedicating the time and thought to something worthwhile, and then being able to communicate that sense of wonder to others. It's about taking light from those ever distant stars and turning it into a story about us. When you read about astrophysics, just from a layman's perspective, the enormous, enormous distances involved and just the sort of unknowability, or at least you would think there would be unknowable, of 
how you can learn about something so far away using basically the projection of what that is onto our surface through light. And it's not even a clear projection because light will sort of curve. Um, and it's just so, I think, humbling. That's, what, that's how Carl Sagan described it. I had him read one of his favorite speeches about astrophysics, originally said by Carl Sagan. It's pretty famous, and it's basically describing the Earth as seen from the Voyager spacecraft as it exited our solar system. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and... Whether you're an amateur astronomer, a budding astrophysicist, or just someone who appreciates a nice, elegant proof, you probably have experienced love, if not for a specific other person who lives on this pale blue dot, but for the Earth itself. And for many people, the way to show that love is to ask questions, to investigate, to do science. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Carl Sagan. To close us out, I asked Peter Birch to explain the scientific concept of the Northern Lights. But it's basically just charged particles hitting the Earth's upper atmosphere, and that's what's causing the glow. And it can vary from just kind of like a little bit of a faint glow to almost electric curtains that are colored. And then I asked him to explain how it made him feel. Just the uniqueness and just the feeling you get to see this, how it's just, you know, it's something you can't, you can't really explain. You just have to see it once, especially where you're laying at a pier like I was at a friend's house in northern Wisconsin. His whole cabin was asleep, and I'm out there. Again, it was maybe midnight, one in the morning, and I woke up. I must have dozed off for a minute, and it was completely electric green, pulses of light going uh, over my head so like straight overhead from the horizon um, it just you have to it's just you have to be you have to see it to believe it so what is love it's waiting until 3 a.m to see one star out of a hundred million that you might never see again it's spending hours on research just to figure out the answer to a part of a question it's a devotion to a concept that doesn't exist except in the mind or maybe it's just that we are trained as humans to love things that are beautiful. But yeah, that's the draw for me, the beauty of it. And the universe, however you slice it, is beautiful. You sign off on people in astronomy, the geeky astronomy forum, you say, clear skies, Pete. That's your sign off, you know, wishing everyone clear skies. Signing off and wishing you clear skies. For WR News, I'm Mika Ellison. Thanks, Mika. With a few days of warm weather and an optimistic prediction from a certain famous roundhog, spring feels right around the corner. Or does it? Juliet Allen has more. Hi, I'm Juliet. Welcome back to Fairweather Friends. Each week, we give you a peek into the local and national weather. Spoiler alert, it's going to be chilly again soon. From Evanston, Illinois, this is Fairweather Friends. Who's the weather? I don't know about you, but 50 degree temps in early February was not on my 2024 bingo board. Could spring be here already? Unfortunately, the answer is no. 
let's break it down. Our first full week of February was pretty consistent with temperatures in the 30s and 40s with lots of cloud cover and some wind. On Thursday, though, Evanston residents got to experience a rare 56-degree high accompanied by some sun in the morning and early afternoon. The clouds rolled back in later in the day, bringing some rain with them. Meanwhile, it looks like there's a cold front moving in from the west, sweeping through Iowa and down through the Midwest from north to south. This will bring in cooler air and even rain by Sunday. Next week, we'll drop back into the 30s with the potential for some sun. Monday will likely be the sunniest day of the week with only 7% cloud cover, so plan to soak up some extra vitamin D. Wednesday is Valentine's Day, but the weather will be pretty unremarkable in the high 30s and with a lot of cloud cover. On Thursday, we might see some periods of snow along with 33 mile per hour winds. Chicago winter might not be over just yet, but there's reason to hope it'll be over soon. Groundhog Day was last Friday, and our very own weather wizard, Punxsutawney Phil, did not see his shadow. That means, in theory, that spring should be coming early this year. In 138 years of Groundhog Day celebrations, Phil the Groundhog has only not seen his shadow a total of 21 times, making this a rare event. Groundhog Day takes place every February 2nd in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and although it's not a recognized national holiday, thousands of people gather to watch Phil's prediction live. Meanwhile, millions await his judgment around the world. He's not the most reliable source, though. The Stormfax Almanac reports that Phil has only been right about 39% of the time since his first recorded prediction in 1887. But Juliet, you might be asking, there's no way a groundhog could live that long, right? Well, legend has it that Punxsutawney Phil is immortal, and I'm not in the business of questioning magical rodents. I just think he would have gotten the hang of it by now. At the end of the day, predicting the weather patterns for the entire contiguous United States is a lot of pressure for a little groundhog. Whether he's right or wrong, this quirky holiday brings some joy during the midwinter slump. That's all for this week's edition of Fairweather Friends. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, don't question any specially gifted rodents. In Evanston, Illinois, Juliet Allen, WNUR News. Thanks, Juliet. Taking a look into the headlines in Evanston, Chicago land, and across the nation and globe, the Associated Student Government started their election process Thursday evening. Students can cast their votes to determine which student ambassadors will be joining the administration. The voting will end Saturday. Additionally, following a fire that erupted near Evanston's West End neighborhood, members in the community pulled over $100,000 via online fundraisers to help support the small businesses that had been affected. In Chicago, a cyber attack that targeted a children's hospital is still affecting the patients and doctors. The attack is preventing doctors and nurses from accessing patient records stored digitally, as well as communication between the parents and the workers. Tomorrow marks the celebration of the Lunar New Year. For many, this engenders family traditions, carnivals, and various festivities. 2024 specifically marks the Year of the Dragon. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on X at WNUR News and Instagram at WNUR News 893. You can listen to these and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNURnews.org. That's WNURnews.org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our producer today was Erica Schmidt, and our reporters are Edward Cruz, Mika Ellison, Izzy Pareja, and Juliet Allen. I'm Alex Huerta. Catch our next newscast Monday, February 12th. Now, back to the scheduled programming.